Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 157 of the Common Knowledge Podcast. I'm your host, Christian, and I'm joined by our co-host, Adam. Before we get too far into this episode, I just want to remind everyone that Common Knowledge and all of the podcasts on the Constructive Criticism Network are sponsored by PureMTGO.com and GameGrid. We plan on talking about some really interesting decks in this episode. If one of them catches your fancy, you can go to GameGrid and use code CKMTG for 10% off. The link to their website is going to be in the description down below. Other ways to support the show include liking and sharing this video and subscribing to the Constructed Criticism YouTube channel. And if what we have here isn't enough, feel free to check out the Common Knowledge Patreon. With all of that out of the way, let's get on with the podcast for the week. What's been up, man? So... I uh, had an interesting day at work today. Uh, we actually got done super early, and I got to have one of those moments that you always hear talked about. They say, you know, dress for the job you want, not the one you have. I couldn't dress for it, but I could definitely go to our company president and try to take on some of the duties of it for the day, just kind of get my foot in the door. Okay. We, uh, we had a bunch of cycle counts that we needed done, and... I knocked out a couple of them, and one of them I found like an inventory adjustment that was absolutely massive. So <laughs> we, we had a lot. in the good way or massive yes, in the red way? In, in, in a good way. We had a lot of stuff that we thought we were going to need, and we just have a bunch of it on hand so we can not have to order it for a while. Well, heck yeah. That was a good Time day. Stuff. How about um, you? Yeah, this week. Um, so I guess a few different things. So one, you know, my job currently have a project in flight that we do overnight. And so I don't have to do much work overnight, but I kind of am just like on call for it. So <laughs> it's been kind of like getting in the way of us recording a podcast. This is actually <laughs> the second time we tried to record this episode. The uh, first time, like we were literally like 15 minutes into recording. And I think I got like eight phone calls back to back to back. And eventually we were just like, you know what? We'll try I'm going again. to bed. I'm going yeah. to bed. <laughs> yeah. But then also, my daughter's first full week of school is this week. Yes. Yeah, so it's super cool, right? <clears throat> but we kind of have that moment where after the first day this week, um, you know, we drop her off on the car rider line, and this is the first day I can't walk her in. So, you know, yeah. I let her out of the car, and I'm thinking she's going to be upset. So, like, I'm like, all right, Harper, I love you. I go down and give her a hug and a kiss. And she just looks at me, and she goes, bye, Dad. And runs inside the building. Oh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was like, and it's just like one of those realizations where it's like, oh, you're more ready for this than I am. You are so much more ready. For 
<laughs> and then there was Abel, who on his second day, after his first day, second day of school, was like, what do you mean I have to do this every day? Oh, oh yeah. Well, look, we've, <laughs> we've already had that discussion, too. Like, Harper told me this morning, she's like, just one more day, and then it's the weekend. And I was like, Harper, you're five. You're in kindergarten. You are learning so early. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're already, like, living for your days off. Don't do that. But, yeah, no. Yeah, it's just funny. So, yeah, you know, I guess we can go ahead and just jump into the meat of the episode, which is yeah. um, kind of doing our mid-month check-in of the decks that we've chosen to play. It's fun. So, the beginning of this month, we had discussed we wanted to do blue, red, X control decks. Yes. Um, so, you and I both basically, I think, just picked like colors, somewhat of archetypes, and just kind of jumped in from there. Um, if you want to kind of lead it off with what you've been toying around with. So, this is going to make one of the uh, listeners on Twitter whose Twitter handle name escaped me at the moment. It's going to make them very happy because I am revisiting the cantrips plus land grant into some sort of a payoff package. In this case, it's teamer serpentine curve. And I wanted to go down the land grant rabbit hole because you get to play more spells for your curve. You are already incentivized to play snowlands to play scred anyway, so you're not sacrificing any value for this version of the deck that way. And because you are more likely to regularly achieve threshold, you get to play a card that I really like that I have not been able to find a good home for in Swirling Sandstorm. Actual board wipe and popper. Not a, not a two damage to everything. Not a everybody gets minus one, minus one, but five damage across the board. Right. Four mana. It's the closest thing we get to actual wrath and popper. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you get the the splinter twin combo of serpentine curve and fling to mop up from there. Mm-hmm. Just the tiniest little nugget of utility from the land grant package, because one of the biggest problems is your filter cards in the serpentine curve deck, like your auger boluses, your uh, pieces of the puzzle mm-hmm. cannot find you land drops normally. Right. But they can find you land grant. Right. Which is somewhat of the same thing. So, whenever you're building this list, is Augur Bolas the only creature that you play? Do you try yes. and play, like, Archaeomancer or anything like that? Uh, we went just... We wanted to make our opponent's removal as bad as possible. Okay. So that, you know... The only thing they have a chance to point a high-end removal spell at is the Fractal Token from Serpentine Curve right before we fling it at their face. Right. <laughs> okay. So, if you were kind of walking through... Like, what your ideal game plan would be. Could you kind of walk me through, like, unimpeded, what your first couple of turns would look like? Um, At what point of the game are you trying to set up a Serpentine Curve fling? So, the early turns, we are looking to just sort of exchange resources on a one-for-one basis. Uh, You know, we're playing Lightning Bolt, we're playing Scred, we're playing uh, a couple of bounce spells to keep from falling too far behind to the Red decks, the Kiln Fiend decks. And then 
we catch up through pieces of the puzzle card advantage, the ability to find the cards we want through all the cantrips, like Brainstorm plus Land Grant is just actually insane. Right. Because it's a free shuffle effect. But, I mean, there's a lot of talk in Legacy about Land Grant Brain, or not Land Grant Brainstorm, but Brainstorm Fetchlands, and this is the closest thing we get to it in Pauper because it's a free shuffle effect. Mm-hmm. It's not a tempo negative one. Like you can hit your land drop, play your brainstorm, cast your land grant, shuffle, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like it just is everything I wanted it to be in this deck. That I or it is in this deck everything I wanted it to be in like the Delvery Threshold one, and then like pieces of the puzzle being a consistent two for one because we are mo- almost mono instants and sorceries. A little bit of flashback utility in cards like Deep Analysis to help get through the deck. I will note that one card I'm a little lower on than the community list that I found is Accumulated Knowledge for two reasons. One, I don't want to turn my opponent's Accumulated Knowledges on. Okay. Because it feels really bad if I pieces mine, you know, I pieces one of mine into the graveyard, and then my opponent gets to draw two cards off of it first. Like, that just feels really rough to me. And it feels like a deck that's got a lot of air in it. There's a lot of cards that just draw other cards. Right. And while that's great for getting you to a quick serpentine curve, it is also a great recipe for you getting your face smashed in while you're looking for a removal spell. As far as a setup goes, like a a turn sequence we're looking to get to, I want to try to get to, like, Turn eight, turn nine, you know, we really want to play that nice, long, grindy game. And then just try to jam a window open that we can hit curve plus fling plus disruption for your disruption attempt. You know, I guess, like, um, something that I was really wondering when you were telling me about the deck is kind of what does its matchup spread look like? Because to me, you know, it sounds like a deck that, see, it sounds very swingy in matchups. Because, you know, we kind of discussed there being a lot of air and things like that in the deck. So it sounds like, you know, if your opponent is on, like, a similarly slow deck, you can kind of eke out more value and interact with them in the key ways. And you, I have a feeling you probably have a pretty good matchup against a lot of those slower interactive decks, like Familiars with Prohibit, things like that. But you probably still struggle with the more aggressive decks. Uh, maybe not necessarily, like, Mono Red, but, like, Red, black, burn, um, affinity is more aggressive draws. That's kind of like, that's my read on it on the outside. But I don't know if that's correct because I haven't played the deck at all. Dragon's Breath Weapon helps a lot. Or Breath Weapon, sorry. I, yeah, Breath Weapon. I, it, it helps a lot in a lot of those faster matchups. Uh, it's something I usually board up to two copies along with an extra copy of the, the Sandstorm. And then there's a little bit of spice I have if my opponents are going to be fairly removal light. Mm-hmm. And that is, I've, I've experimented with bringing in the threshold package. Okay. Like bringing in some number of mongoose and werebear because they get so big so quick and just tank up the battlefield while we go through our deck. Okay. Thinking about that, like whenever I'm thinking... Again, just the matchups and popper that like I would expect to face and like a standard league or challenge are Boros, yep. Mono Red, some flavor of fairies, and then like maybe like Boggles or Affinity. And the reason I'm saying 
like going through that is thinking of those matchups. Obviously, the breath weapon and stuff like that helps. But whenever you're telling me about the board plan, are we weak to like a relic of progenitus type effect at all in this deck? That's a fair. That's a fair question. Uh, we are not super graveyard reliant in game ones, right? And I mean, curve counts your exiled ones, so yeah, <laughs> that is less of an issue. the The biggest things that uh, relic or Nile spell bomb or Bajuka bog or the like, the biggest thing it shuts off of cards like sandstorm or the the transformative board. If they know it's coming, obviously that's really bad for us. But it's definitely still a work in progress on the sideboard plan side. Another card that I really love out of the board is Curfew because we are so light on creatures. Right. It's an absolute blowout against Boggles. So, you know, it's just another way to eke out those little bits of advantage. Yeah, for sure. Any, like, tips and tricks or whatever for... You know, if somebody wanted to go by the list, which I'm sure will be posted somewhere in the description or on Twitter or rent it online, is there like a, this is your first match, this are things that you need to think about when piloting the deck? Be patient. Don't try to seek out an aggressive win unless the opportunity to do so just like blatantly presents itself. Mm -hmm. Like... There, this is not a deck you play because you can just curve out and do this thing. Right. <laughs> the biggest thing is, like, Scred is your premier piece of removal. It is the best thing you have against the decks that go longer than you or the decks that go bigger than you. And you really need to try to save that as long as you can. Now, in your um, playing with it, are there any, like, um, I guess, glaring weaknesses? That the deck has that um, maybe is like not necessarily um, like a mainstream weakness, but like something that could be off the beaten path. Like, is it randomly weak to like blue black creatureless control or something like that? Depending on how you structure the list, it it can be soft to decks that don't give you a lot of windows for removal. Like, if you can't get a lot of value out of removal from the perspective of slowing an opponent down or getting your opponent to invest multiple cards into a threat, like your assertion, your suggestion of blue-black creatureless control is definitely a concern, but we've still got lightning bolts that can go upstairs to soften them up a little bit, and then we can, you know, pieces of the puzzle helps a little bit in that regard. Brainstorm as well, because you can you can kind of get cards that are bad back and not right. have to draw them as far as I, I honestly haven't really gotten a chance to play against much stuff that's been off the beaten path since I got it put together. So it's a, it's an odd position to be in where I'm like trying to think of something unusual and I just have not, have not had the experience against it. So I'm not sure. Oh yeah. That's totally fine. I don't know the, um, what you shared with me and what you said here, it seems really interesting um, I think it's worth saying that kind of the reason that we're doing this exercise is trying to figure out when maybe you would shy away from your standard blue-red control deck or like fairies and into one of these niche archetypes. Do you feel like you found that with this? Or do you think this is like one of those things that's like a fun idea, but isn't necessarily ever like um, an option you should choose if you're looking to 
go far in a challenge or even a local tournament? So I think this is going to be a little bit of a cop-out, but I think we're a little of column A, a little of column B in the sense that being relatively creatureless yourself, either because you're only playing augers or there's lists out there you can find that are completely creatureless, except for the token you make from curve right before you throw it at your opponent's face. Making your opponent's removal bad in a format where everybody is playing really fast and the other reactive decks want to have a lot of cheap, efficient removal is not a bad game one strategy at all. Mm Mm-hmm. And then once you figure out what your board plan is for those matchups, when they can be a little bit better prepared for you, like it, it gives you a chance that you maybe otherwise wouldn't have had. You almost end up on the other side of the dredge equation where a chunk of the field is just not equipped to deal with you in game one. Mm -hmm. They just don't have a way to disrupt you profitably. So they have to bank on your fail state and try to get you dead. And barring that, like, you know, you do this thing that's just a little bit over the top of what probably, I don't know, 60% of the format is doing, where you have the threat of, oops, I just killed you, and seemingly out of nowhere. And you get to protect it with counter spells and cantrips and removal. So <laughs> it's, it's definitely, it definitely feels like a little bit of a Splinter Twin situation. Hashtag copyright, whatever year Mason came up with that. <laughs> right. I've been working on a Grixis deck that started out awfully. So my original idea was, you know, I'm a sucker for blue-white familiars. And I was like, you know, I think Cleansing Wildfire is an amazing card. And so that kind of had me looking at um, the like Jeskai familiar stack. But I was like, why wouldn't somebody try and play Nightscape familiar and switch out white for black? So, you know, I was kind of looking into it, looking into it, thinking about it. And I put together a list that honestly was all over the place. You know, with Cleansing Wildfire, with Nightscape familiar and Prohibits and Ghostly Flicker and Mold Drifter, Archaeomancer, you know, Crimson Fleet Commodore. Like, just Sage's Road Dennis, and like, it just had a lot going on. And it's like, I kind of had that tunnel vision of like this deck at its best is just like this unstoppable monster, <laughs> you know? But it's like, we got hung up deck, on the, the best. Yeah, this deck, you know, takes 11 turns to get to its best and doesn't do anything until then. And then the best sometimes doesn't come together because it requires like three or four pieces. But, you know, I, I played a couple of leagues with that deck and did pretty much terribly. Um, but there was one card, really two cards, that kept standing out as like way above the power level of the rest of the deck. One of those cards was Crimson Fleet Commodore. So, you know, four mana, five, two with Trample. You gain the Monarch. I was only playing one. And I think every game that I won, I played Crimson Fleet Commodore. You know, because the deck has tons of removal, some good counter spells. Crimson Fleet Commodore itself can really gum up a board. But most of the games that I was winning involved landing that card and protecting it. And so that kind of pushed me in the direction of maybe I want more of these. <clears throat> but then, as I thought more and more about it, there was one other card that I was playing in the list that was pairing really well with Crimson Fleet Commodore, as well as Archaeomancer and um, the red Archaeomancer, I'm blanking on its name right now, um, Ardent Elementalist. And that was Blood Fountain. 
So I was originally playing Blood Fountain in this deck because, you know, it's a control deck that actually, like, um, like you're trying to hit, you know, 10, 11 land drops. A lot of your lands are coming in untapped. You have a fair amount of air in the deck. You have a bunch of different types of removal for a large matchup spread that you would expect out of a league. And it was also the kind of deck that I felt like really needed to start putting the pressure on your opponent when it needed to. So I was already playing Blood Fountain just for the blood token. But I found myself, you know, I would fight over Crimson Fleet Commodore. My opponent would remove it, and then I would get to sacrifice Blood Fountain and pick up a Mole Drifter and Crimson Fleet Commodore again. Then I had two more cards to fight over. Yes. Um, it felt really nice to have access to that resource, because particularly the other decks trying to play a controlling game love to fight over those resources. But then the other thing that Blood Fountain was letting me do was against the more aggressive matchups where maybe they're playing like a few pieces of removal. I'm thinking like Mono Red, where they're playing like Lightning Bolts and stuff, but normally they want that stuff to go face. <laughs> is I could bring in more interaction and cut down to just a few threats because if they did remove those threats and sneak a You've removal spell under me, the Blood Fountain could come back and get it later. It also let me put those cards in the yard to pick up like to try and dig for more removal till I could get myself to a board state where I felt like I could win the game. So with those two cards going super strong, that kind of led me to the second iteration of the deck, which I had a lot more success with. So we cut the familiars, we cut all the flicker stuff, and we basically just became a six cantrip. Really, it should be eight cantrips, but I was counting Blood Fountain as cantrips, and I was playing two of those. I was playing Galvanic Blast and Lightning Bolts and still the Cleansing Wildfire Package. Prohibit was my choice counterspell. And then I had Cast Downs and um, Chainer's Edicts. This Black Removal. <clears throat> and then my Flex Splots, I felt like were a Braid and Fire Ice and two Fiery Cannonade. And then I was just playing Ardent Elementalist, Crimson Fleet Commodore, Archaeomancer. And then I put in a full four boarding party. Ooh. So the idea is that I think Blood Fountain would be really strong with Boarding Party because a lot of your removal is proactive and a lot of it also goes face. You know, if you're cascading into either other creatures or your removal, you always have something to do with it. And it just felt really strong. The only miss, really, was um, Prohibit. But I was fine missing on Prohibit. Because the strength of a boarding party, getting to close out the game so quickly, and if your opponents remove it, just the interaction that it has with the rest of the deck feels really strong. That's that's where I was, and I had a lot more success with that, particularly against red decks and fairies decks. I'm sorry, it sounded like you wanted to say something? No, you're good. It just kind of goes back to something we talked about when we were first looking at these decks in the last episode we did when we were talking about building control decks, it's we needed to be able to actually close the game out quick because all these other interactive decks can beat you if you try to take them to the mat and play a card advantage game. So being able to stick with them through the middle turns and then have something, anything that just scares the pants off of them that they have to, they have to respect Oh, for sure. And, you know, that was something else that we talked about, right? Is, like, if we were going to find ways to win the game, it needed to be a way that wins the game suddenly or a way to win the game that produces card advantage as well. 
So with you, you know, you went within the game suddenly, Serpentine Curve and Fling. And originally, you know, I was thinking Crimson Fleet Commodore is a way to win that also gives you card advantage. But Boarding Party kind of does both. Yep. Uh, super quick, quick clock that gives you another card. But something else that having Commodores and Boarding Party in your deck does means that you get to play the kind of control deck that I always liked, which was kind of ignore what your opponent is doing control. Like, not entirely, right? Like, against a lot of decks, like, you're still wanting to interact early. That's not what I mean. But, like, the strength of a lot of control decks, it's like um, playing, like, Blue, Black, Inverter, and Pioneer. It's like sometimes your opponent would just play cards, and you'd be like, okay. Like, I don't need to actually interact with that. Like, I can advance my own game plan, because what you're doing is not strong enough. And that's how I feel about having Boarding Party and Crimson Fleet Commodore. Is like, yeah, I could hold all my shields up with removal and counter spells this turn. Or I could pay six mana and put a boarding party into play, effectively draw a card and cast it for free, and then just use all my removal next turn and figure it out. And I like the ability to not be afraid in a deck like this. I guess you could, uh, it's a similar, similar but different enough approach from my side, right? Like, I, leaving three mana up, and if you don't do anything I care about, we can pieces. Or if you don't do anything I care about, we can loop a couple of cantrips together and stock the graveyard. I'm still getting to do something I want to do. It's it's always been a point of contention for me. Is like uh, goes back to I can't remember who it was. If it was Chapin back in the day or who, but it was the the concept of not wasting your mana. And it's something control decks are generally pretty bad about is wasting mana. Just leaving it up and then your opponent doesn't do anything and then you just don't get to do anything either because your game plan was predicated on stopping them from doing stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, kind of on that concept of not wasting your mana, like a tip that I would probably give people that want to pick up the Grixis deck, um, again, link pictures, links to um, the deck probably be down below in the description, is that kind of use your resources when you can. So when I was playing the second build of the deck with Boarding Party, sometimes I would find myself like not wanting to interact, you know, turns one and two, because like I was looking for something more meaningful. But it kind of started clicking with me when I realized like, hey, turn two, I'm going to cast Cleansing Wildfire. And then turn three or four, I'm going to start trying to land threats. So I probably should interact on turns one, two, three, like as quickly as I can, no matter what they're playing. Just because at some point I'm going to want to like use my mana and advance my game plan. So, you know, against fairies, which I think is a really good matchup for this deck. Like if they're playing a fairy seer on turn one, I'm probably going to give them a chance to ninja something in. And if they don't, I'm going to kill that on turn one because then they can't ninja something in. Spell Surge Sprite gets really bad because it can't counter my two and three mana spells. Like, just proactively using all that removal, trading one for one, even if it's not against their best cards. Because the idea is our best cards are way better than your best cards. Yes. Because I have Crimson Fleet Commodore and Boarding Party in my deck, and you have Ninja the Deep Hours in yours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's different weight classes. <laughs> yeah. So, this is kind of, I guess par for our course right between the two of us it feels like we are very much doing the i'm playing the drago deck and you're playing the tap out deck yeah for sure and <laughs> something 
that I like about this deck too is like once you get to the end game, it's like we would always joke um, locally that like at a certain point, like you could make decisions at random and win. But this deck does kind of feel like it where it's like, okay, I'm going to pass my turn. I'm going to, you know, attack or hold all my creatures back. Um, you're going to go, you're going to play something and it's like, oh, I can interact with that or I cannot, and then use Blood Fountain to buy my cards back and play them again. Like, you just have so many options once you get to that end game. Obviously, getting to the end game can be challenging. <clears throat> One of the weaknesses of this deck, even though it's like a deck where part of its primary game plan focuses on the mana base with Cleansing Wildfire, the mana can be really bad in this deck. It's part of the reason I play Prohibit instead of Counterspell, is just because... You don't want so many blue pips, so many red pips, and so many black pips always flying around. But, you know, there are plenty of times where, you know, you have a blue and black hand, blue and black lands, and you're playing well, and you start drawing red spells, and you draw cleansing wildfires, but you never have a bridge to cast the wildfire on, or you never have a red bridge of, or like a red source. So, you know, if you're going to play this deck, I'd recommend mulliganing really aggressively. Which is funny because normally my advice in control decks is to never mulligan. Don't. Yeah, just yeah. don't. Yeah, if you've got a mixture <laughs> of lands and spells, you just don't do it, right? Yeah, right. especially game ones. But like, this is a deck where it's like, hey, if you're not going to have all three colors of your mana, unless like the rest of your hand is phenomenal, just ship it back. Like, like you are more likely to win a game bowling to four than you are a game where you never saw a red source. Yeah. Yeah, you know, matchup. I told you, you know, I think fairies is really good. Like I said, I've been kind of following the interact as early as possible strategy. Really try and kill the ninjas. And then just, like, a lot of times it feels like they're ahead because they will also interact with your threats. But at some point, both decks are going to start landing threats, but you're landing boarding parties and cards that buy back your removal in Archaeomancer. And they're going to start paying four mana for Ninja of the Deep Hours. That's just not a good <clears throat> recipe. <laughs> yep, exactly. Mono Red. It's kind of weird, right? Because I think I messaged you, and I know I messaged like a bunch of Discord groups about, like, hey, how can we gain life in black? Because <laughs> uh, that's what I was really missing the green for. was like, I wanted Weather the Storm for the red matchups. And someone suggested, they were like, well, why don't you just play like eight blasts? And, like, I think they kind of suggested it as a joke, but that's what I'm doing. My sideboard has eight blue blasts. So, the, list, the list that I originally came off, uh, came off with and was working on for Teamer was also playing... It was playing Manamorphose and Weather the Storm in the main deck, and then it was also playing, like, seven blasts in yeah. the board. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, like, tons of blue blasts. Because, honestly, the blue blasts, like, you don't bring all of them in against not mono-red. But you can still bring in, like, you know, three or four blasts against other miscellaneous red decks, and it's fine. Boggles is one of those weird matchups where it feels like they lose to themselves about 25% of the time. And then, you know, you have sweepers and edicts to actually interact with them. And hopefully you can execute your game plan fast enough that you have a chance against them. But I'd be lying if I said I thought it was, like, the best matchup in the world. You're, um, you're doing the thing that kind of a lot of people do to me, which is you're banking on their fail state and trying to push it in that direction where you can. 
Yeah, and honestly, like, it's fine. Like, yeah. like I wouldn't let Boggles, even though it's really popular in the meta, according to Goldfish, anyways. Like, I wouldn't let the fear of that deck stop me from playing Grixis. Um, but I would say that's probably a more bad matchup than it is good. Um, something that I've been struggling with, those against Boros Gates decks. <clears throat> so... The sweepers are really strong against them, and it's kind of like your best Boros players are going to play through or around your sweepers, and your worst ones probably couldn't beat you with a deck like Boros anyways. So that that's kind of like a matchup. It's like a 50-50 split, but I feel like they're in control for most of it, regardless of whether or not I win. It's like either they overcommit into my wrath at the wrong time, and then I play a card advantage spell and win, or they don't, and I lose. Also, Prismatic Strands is really rough. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, God. That yeah, card is I would say, up. yeah, like your best game plan against them, really, right, is interact as much as you can with everything that has flying. Like, and I mean that seriously, you know? Yes. Like, they play they play a Glint Hawk, you remove it. They play Squadron Hawk, you remove it, and then figure out what you're going to do about the other three. Yeah. And then just land a, land a Commodore and protect Monarch with your life. Because the only way that you're going to beat them is if you draw more cards than them, and all of your cards are better than their 1-1 flyers. Yep. Um, which it's funny, right? It's easier to be better than Ninja the Deep Hours in this format than it is a 1-1 flyer. Because their 1-1 flyers get pumped by a Gates and steal the Monarch. We, we really did the Boros month like two months too early. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. It would have been but so yeah, much that's... more fun now. <laughs> yeah, I know I just talked forever. No, that you're was good. Iteration of the deck. Um, <laughs> I've been playing around with a third iteration. I ran it through a league today that is kind of going, you know, boarding party is really strong. Commodore is really strong. All this interaction is really strong. But we had issues with the mana. So I was like, what if we weren't playing Galvanic Blast and instead we're playing Scred with Snowlands? And, you know, instead of cleansing wildfire, we play something like, um, like just any other card advantage. So I chose, um, like, a, the ac Accumulated Knowledge Analog. Um, it's not Accumulated Knowledge, but it's the same card. I forget what it's called. What is that card's name? It's going gonna, it's gonna to bother me now. Yeah. I know what it is. I, I know what it is, and I can't remember the name of it. But, yeah. yeah I could. The one that doesn't up. make your opponent's AKs better. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, been playing that. And then I basically remove some of the flex spots to work in two serpentine curves and a fling. I'm so proud um, right now. Yeah. So <laughs> the um, the idea is that you know you play this controlling deck that has these proactive plays in boarding party and crimson fleet commodore that your opponent has to interact with, and hopefully you get them to kind of spend their interaction using it where they have to, and then you fall back on this backup plan of playing like a ten ten token. And if the 1010 token doesn't work, then you fling a boarding party or a 1010 token at their face. But it was really just wanting to take advantage of what boarding party does, which is give you powerful free spells. And it's like we should make it to where boarding party could hit a fling, sacrifices itself, throws it up, and then I can blood fountain it back. <laughs> so <clears throat> basically, cut down the artifact lands. Add Snowlands, add Scred, cut Cleansing Wildfire, add card advantage, and just kind of have another backup plan in Serpentine Curve Fling. 
Like I said, I only played one league with it. I didn't feel like it was the best representation of the meta game. I don't know if it's better. I'm afraid that it's going to have the same problem that the first build of the deck had, which is it's just all over the place. Trying to do too much. Yeah, but honestly, it's what like half the decks that are really good in Popper kind of look like. It's like, what does this deck do? Everything. So, so this is this is coming from someone who played this. It's a little ironic that you're you're on you know what looks like a mopey card advantage spell at one mana that just ends up being bonkers late in games because it reminds me of a deck that I played both in standard back in what year was that two thousand nine and uh pauper in 2010 which uh gavin varhey lovingly dubbed up down draw new which was basically making the blood fountain of originals Endicar playable uh that card being soulstair expedition and one of the ways that we made that card work was by playing a bunch of cycling creatures in our deck okay so you could cycle those creatures to put a bunch of stuff in your graveyard and get through your deck, or you could throw them down as meat shields to stem the aggressive tide until you got your bigger stuff online. But, like, Architects of Will is a very unassuming creature until you are stacking three lands on top of your opponent's library so they can't top deck action. It sounds bad, but it's... But it it's good once. It was good enough, right? Like, right. it was a deck that was designed to beat uh, Jund at that point, and it was really awkward for them to blightening you, and then for you to pick up the two cards you discarded to blightening. And Blood Fountain is just like the best Solstair Expedition because I don't have to hit two land drops to turn it on. Yeah, well, that's kind of everything that I had about Grixis. I think super fun deck to play. I think it has real legs in the format. You know, I struggle for a reason to pick it just head and shoulders over fairies, except yeah. for the fact that I don't think I've lost to fairies with the uh, second build of the deck. So, you know, if your metagame is all fairies, maybe don't play it. Uh, play this instead. But yeah, it's a lot of fun to play. I was kind of worried that it wouldn't be any fun, but kind of never feel like you're out of games, even if you really are. Yeah. Um, the feeling of hope. Um, what is that? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else on a teamer? I am still going to be iterating on this for a while. I have thoroughly enjoyed playing it. I loved playing Twin back in the day when it was in Standard and Modern. And there's it, it has a very similar, albeit slower, version of the same kind of play patterns. You just don't die, don't die, don't die, don't die, kill them. Right. <laughs> then that's the case. I guess it's going to do it for this episode of Common Knowledge. If you wanted to get in touch with us, you can find me on Twitter at JustGuyDad. Adam, where can they find you? On Twitter at HomewardPathMTG. Uh, if you want to get to know the man behind the mic a little bit better, you can find me on TikTok at HomewardPathGaming. And I will, at some point, now that we've got some of the technical issues fixed on the computer, uh, be posting gameplay videos of other games on the my YouTube channel, which is also Homeward Path Gaming. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Um, 
You can find us both over at commonknowledgemtg at gmail.com. If you have any questions on the popper format, MTGO, life in general, you can leave a comment down below or reach out to us on our socials. want to give a quick thank you again to our sponsors, GameGrid and PureMTGO.com, as well as the Constructed Criticism Network for letting us be a part of it. Last, certainly not least, thank you for listening. Take very good care of each other. And never stop moving.